Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, Michael McMullen with me again. It's Christmas time. There's no need to be afraid. Mm, <laughs> don't know about that. Unless, of course, you watch the news. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we're here to, we're here to uh, well, we're here to wrap up the year in snooker and hopefully distract ourselves from the sheer misery that lies ahead. <laughs> um, well, let's not, let's not beat about the bush. It's not, it's not a good time. We know that. It's been a difficult year. It could have been worse, though, for snooker. And we'll come, in, we'll come on to that. We're going to sort of look back at what's been a very eventful year on and off the table. Um, before all of that, though, just to, we're going to quickly just look back at the last two tournaments. Um, we recorded the last edition of the podcast before the Scottish Open, which was won by Mark Selby. For once, a final that wasn't close. We've been used to a lot of close finals. He just kind of... Uh, it's not even... True to say, wall running a sudden down. He was just he was just by far the better player on the day. One thing I was very surprised about was that people were saying before the final that O'Sullivan was favoured. I, I really cannot see how anyone could reach that conclusion because this has been a pattern recently. He's been getting through matches, O'Sullivan, sort of not perhaps playing his best and sort of scrapping it out a bit more than we're used to seeing. But time and time again, over the last few months, when he's come up against good players, like the very, very best players, he's been found out. And I certainly would have been surprised if he'd won the final. Uh, in the past, whenever Selby's beaten him in finals, it's generally been deciders or the world final, of course, which was pretty close when uh, Selby had the big turnaround from 10-5 down. So really, this was a new era, really, in, in the history of Selby and O'Sullivan and, and Selby beating O'Sullivan in big matches and that he won it quite comfortably in the end. And has now beaten him in a lot of big finals. So I wasn't at all surprised with the way it happened. I think O'Sullivan, I just don't know how to comment on what's happened to him over the last few months. That He's actually been doing pretty well in tournaments, but has been doing well without really playing well. And as I say, when it really comes to it, he just keeps getting found out. And that was what happened again in the Scottish. Well, here's the thing. So I'd been commentating on it from Eurosport HQ, not from Milton Keynes, but I did the afternoon session of the final. Yeah. So I had to get to Milton Keynes for the uh, World Grand Prix so went that, that late after the first session. And I got there, checked in the hotel, 
about 20 to 7. And Ronnie was in reception, just getting a bag. I think he'd left a bag behind or something, was getting a bag. And I just started talking to him, and he was asking about what had been going on at Eurosport and so on. And it, it, it only occurred to me about a minute into the conversation. He was actually playing in the final 20 minutes later. Yeah. You, wouldn't have, you wouldn't have known. It was like kind of almost the two things were separate. Um, not someone who, like if you saw Stephen Hendry half an hour before the final session of a final, or a lot of sort of top players, maybe even Judd Trump, they wouldn't be talking to anyone. They'd just be sort of in whatever the zone is. They'd be in it. As we know, Ronnie is a one-off. But it, it, he seemed in fine spirits as well. Very friendly and chatty. But the actual tournament, um, you know, he had all this playing on at the end of frames and everything, to the extent where he attempted in one frame to play on with the black left on, which was just a, a farce. Um, so I don't know. Uh, he seemed to, he said he enjoyed his week there, but he wouldn't have enjoyed losing to Selby. We'll come on to that, actually, because there's an email about that shortly. Uh, last week, the World Grand Prix uh, just finished, of course. Aptly, I guess, the last tournament of the year has been won by Judd Trump. At 7-2 in the final, it looked like it was just going to peter out and be a landslide. Jack Lazowski proved what a great talent he is, the way he came back. He played absolutely, not just great snooker, but just such entertaining snooker. And Trump had to make a couple of key clearances. And it was kind of proof that, you know, at the moment, if you ask Trump the question, invariably he finds the answers. Yeah, I mean, the the clearance to go 8-6, I think it was. Yeah, I mean, just amazing stuff. Fantastic clearance. And yet, almost from the moment he came to the table, you somehow knew he was going to do it. I mean, I, I just can't speak highly enough of, of Trump and everything he's done now over the last couple of years. That's 12 ranking titles now, is it? Since yeah, yeah. since November 2018. And he's won the Masters in that time. And I, I, I don't know, off the top of my head, I can't think of anyone who's ever won 12 ranking titles in that space of time. Now, you could say, of course, in Hendry's heyday or whatever, there just weren't as many ranking events. Equally so, I think it's fair to say there weren't as many good players to beat to win the ranking events. So, I mean, from that point of view, to win that many tournaments and so many big tournaments as well in such a short space of time. And when you consider, you know, if maybe a total of perhaps three or four shots across two finals against Neil Robertson, had gone differently. He could have won another two big tournaments in that time as well. I'm just so excited, actually, about what's going on with him and, and what might lie ahead for him over the next couple of years. He's still, I mean, even at the age he is now, 31, he's still a lot younger than most of the other leading players. And, you know, when you look at what's coming through younger than him, it's Kyron Wilson, who I guess knocked him out of the World Championship. It's Jack Lazowski, who he managed to beat in the final I just think there's so much more still to come from him. And he's really growing now into uh, uh, the the game's figurehead, the game's ambassador almost, because he speaks so well. I thought he spoke really well at the end of the final as well. And it's just fantastic to see that this is happening now and that someone has come through to take on that role who you feel is going to be around for a long time. You think from about 2004 onwards, there was a period of about 15 years when Ronnie O'Sullivan at many periods was number one in the world, was clearly the best player. Even when he was falling down the rankings a bit, I think there was still always a feeling that he still was the best player and that he just wasn't engaging properly with the tournament scene. And once he did again, he'd be back as the undisputed best player and prove himself in that role. And, you know, we saw that played out in 2013 when he basically didn't engage at all with the tournament scene for a year then came out of it and, you know, famously won the world championship. But I think now... The perception has to be among everyone that Trump is definitely the best player. O'Sullivan has played in most things over the last few months since the season started, and he hasn't won any of them. 
Trump has been beating him regularly over the last couple of years. And OK, the Northern Ireland Open finals have been close. They've all been 9-7. But you think back to the Masters final, that was a landslide. And again, last week we saw a landslide as well when Trump played so well to beat him so comfortably. So as we sit here now at the end of 2020, there is no question at all about it. Yes, O'Sullivan is world champion at the moment, but Trump is the clear number one. And in the mind of everyone, surely, making a rational assessment of it, is very clearly the best player and the man that they now all have to try to catch. Yeah, and he's got the mindset of a Stephen Hendry, albeit he's developed it later in life than Hendry. Hendry had it when he was like 17. Mm. Um, I'm the best and I'm going to prove it. Took Trump longer. He's got it now. And, you know, you, you, you've got to assume he's going to continue. We don't know exactly how the next couple of years are going to pan out, obviously, in terms of what tournaments there are. But, you know, there's no reason. This mindset he's gotten that ne- nothing's ever quite enough. The fact he played in the Scottish Open was a sign of that. Could have took that week off, you know, why not? But, no, I wouldn't have tried and win another tournament. And even though he wasn't in the best of spirits, or I, I suspect the best of sort of form that week, he got to the quarterfinals. To come and win that World Grand Prix, again, when there were a couple of matches he could have lost, he could have lost to Holty, could have lost to Bingham, probably should have lost to Bingham, but just seems to find another level. And Jack Lazowski... You know, as I say, played so well last night. He really did, you know, and, and that would have put the fear of God into a lot of players. But Judd, again, find, found a response. But we've had an email here actually about the, partly about the World Grand Prix. This is from James Heat. He says, should the World Grand Prix Players Championship and Tour Championship be ranking? They're only open to the top 32 slash 16 slash 8 on the one year list and go against the usual principles that ranking tournaments should be open to all professionals. Hence why the Masters is not ranking. It could be argued these tournaments distort the rankings. Just like the Players' Championship, the Masters is only open to the top 16, albeit from the one-year list, instead of the regular two-year rankings. Well, you kind of answer it, I think, James, there yourself. The, yeah, the, the, the one-year list actually is, um, is effectively an open system because everyone starts the new season on zero points on the one-year list. Everyone starts in the first round of events. So everyone has the chance to get into the top 32. They have the same chance and then the 16 and the 8 from a sort of stand, standing start. The two-year list, of course, disadvantages players who are coming on for the first year. They don't have the, the previous season's points. So you could argue a two-year ranking list is uh, more unfair than, than using a one-year list. Personally, I think it adds to the prestige of the events to make the ranking tournaments. Like I say, you have to have done well. Effectively, you qualify for them through the other tournaments. Now, of course, once you get into one, that gives you an advantage in terms of getting into the next one and the last one. But personally, I have no problem with being them being ranked in tournaments. Yeah, I agree. And I think as well, they've become such a big part of the season. Now, if they didn't count towards the world rankings, then the rankings wouldn't really reflect the season. You know, I, I think they have to count for it, really, because if you take those out, that's three really big events. If none of those count, that's a massive chunk of the season that's not even counting towards the rankings. So, yeah, I agree with everything you say there. I think the World Grand Prix has become a wonderful, wonderful event. It's a great format. It's 32 players in the televised stage. I mean, obviously, there's no pre-qualifying as such. And I, personally, I think that's pretty much a perfect number. You know, unless you're having long-distance matches, I think 32 is absolutely spot on. Obviously, everyone in it has had to play well for at least part of the previous few months to get in. And the fact that it's only played over two tables, you, you get to see most players for a decent chunk of the week. It's not like in some events where someone might get to the semifinals and you might not have seen them hit a ball yet. So I think it's a great format. The fact that it was the week before Christmas, I thought, really added a lot to it. And, and it was the end of a long run of tournaments that we've had over the last little while. 
I don't know if it's going to continue. It may well revert to the sort of February slot that it's had in, in previous years uh, when we you know, hopefully get back to some sort of normality in future seasons. But I thought it was a fantastic week, actually, and arguably for me the most enjoyable tournament, actually, of the season so far. And it was great to see Lozowski doing so well. Nothing against Judd whatsoever. I mean, I'm a massive fan of his. I would have loved to see Jack win it because, as we know, he's just one of the nicest guys you could ever meet. He's had a difficult life at times, and he's come through that. And I think he'd be so good for the game if he could emerge as one of the very best players because he's just great to watch. Uh, as I say, you know, very likable individual as well. And he's just been in so many finals and not won one now. And I think if he does win one, I'm not going to say the floodgates are going to open because I don't think they will. But I think once he wins one, if he can get that out of the way, he could win a few more over the years that follow. And uh, it's just good to see him playing well because he's been a little bit in and out of form uh, in recent months. But uh, he's gradually come back into it now. and. You know, played his part in what, what was a really good final. Yeah, and in terms of the, the slot, ITV4 got some of their best ever snooker viewing figures, so that suggests it may. I mean, obviously, it's a particular time at the moment. Maybe people are not going out for Christmas and so on. Mm. But I think, you know, they were very happy with it anyway. Um, well, also on Sunday night, while the final was on, it was the BBC Sports Personality of the Year. I'm aware that, obviously, we have a lot of listeners not from the UK. In fact, we, there's now this analytics tool where you can find out basically where people are listening. And we have we have a number of uh, listeners in Bolivia, which surprised me to be Amazing. honest. But but to all our Bolivian friends, welcome. Uh, the, I'll explain to you the BBC Sports Personality of the Year. So the BBC, the national broadcaster, for well about sixty years, have been doing an annual program where they celebrate the year in sport. And it used to just be what basically uh, one main award. It's now a bit of an award show. But the main award, Sports Personality of the Year, it's effectively Sports Person of the Year. And uh, for the first time in well, people kept saying since 1990, but actually in 1999, Stephen Hendry was on the shortlist yeah. uh, of six. And Ronnie O'Sullivan finally made the shortlist this year. I, I, I remember you saying you thought he would get on. I still thought he wouldn't just because I thought there was a sort of anti-snooker bias. But he got on. He didn't win. He didn't get in the top three. In fact, we don't really know where he finished because I actually looked into this. And on the BBC website, it says they don't reveal how many votes each candidate got because it essentially... It may upset the it may upset the people um, on the shortlist. That, that's well, kind of their, well, their argument. Well, I I can't say for certain, but I'd be say eighty percent sure that in previous years there have certainly been some times when they have announced yeah the actual have, numbers involved. They have, but it basically says it's essentially saying it, you know it might affect the people. Now these are like Tyson Fury. Okay, is a boxer, right? Mm. I think getting getting sort of punched in the face is probably going to hurt more than finding out you came fifth out of six or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, that's a side issue. It was good. To, I didn't. I haven't seen the program because obviously I was working on the final. It was good that Ronnie uh, was in the mix. Okay, he didn't win. He was in the mix, and that's good. Long overdue. But okay, not everyone is a Ronnie O'Sullivan fan, and maybe this is why I got the sense that the snooker world didn't exactly swing behind him. There were a few. I would say sort of gritted teeth uh, <laughs> testimonials from fellow players um, because at the end of the day, they're his rivals as well. And we've had an email from Dave Ellis, which kind of uh, goes into this. So Dave says, I've heard plenty of discussion on who is the greatest snooker player of all time, the GOAT, over the last little while. It always seems to boil down to Stephen Hendry, Steve Davis and Ronnie O'Sullivan, to which everyone inevitably agrees on O'Sullivan as predicted. I feel that the parties engaged in these discussions are conflating greatness with talent and are in turn, and are in turn naming the best player ever. There is a difference between greatness and being the best. The best player on a team is not necessarily the captain of said team. 
if one could imagine a, a snooker all-star team, Ronnie would surely be the most valuable player, but not the captain. I would agree that Ronnie is undoubtedly the best snooker player of all time. The sheer natural talent, rhythm, style, and aesthetics on the table are unparalleled. He's my favourite player to watch, the most entertaining by far, and he's the reason why I'm interested in snooker to begin with. But greatness is something completely different altogether. Greatness, at least from a snooker perspective, implies class, character, stoicism, tenacity, temperament, ambassadorship, among other qualities, to which I would argue Ronnie has very little. If anything, Ronnie is the anti-hero of snooker. The blatant disrespect towards the referees, other players, fans, and quite honestly, the game, flies in the face of what a great representative should be. Of course, I can't list every incident, as they are becoming too abundant to count. From press conferences in China to all the numpties, 147 refusals to shoulder barges. More recently, we've had the pleasure of watching him play for snookers when his opponent's on 92, reminiscent of a late Robidoux. On top of that, biting off his tip after every second match or causing a stir if someone even shifts in their seat. I'm sure we can agree there's nothing great about conceding in the sixth frame. Most of this could be brushed off early in his career, but, in his, but, in his, but he is in his mid-40s now. Again, there's no one I'd rather watch play the game, but if I were to choose a role model for my daughter to follow, he would be one of the last on the list. No one can deny what Ronnie has brought to the game. Without his electric performances, Snooker might have died in the 90s. His first official maximum proves just how untouchable he is, along with being world champion this far into his career. Having said that, there must be more than just ability when deciding on the greatest of all time. I appreciate that you know him and those inside the Snooker world tend to defend his actions and give him the benefit of the doubt. But from the outside looking in, it's getting harder and harder to condone. For what it's worth, Joe Davis is probably the greatest of all, but in the modern era, Ray Reardon, Steve Davis and Stephen Hendry will be a good starting point. I also suspect that Mark Selby will be in the conversation by the time he's finished. What was interesting about this email, this is from Dave Ellis, is he actually says, it's a little bit contradictory because he actually says Ronnie is the player he most likes to watch and got him into snooker, but then he's sort of questioning his character. I suppose what I would ask is, does it really matter what Ronnie O'Sullivan is like as a person? If you enjoy watching him play, because also you never really know anyone. We have mm. we have perspectives of people, and obviously, I guess we. I mean, I work in snooker, so you get a bit closer to them, but you don't ever really, really know someone. Um, does it actually matter about all that? If you enjoy watching him play, and it sounds like you root for him when he plays, is that enough? I'm a little bit skeptical of where the sports people should be role models. Um, mm. That's not that's not actually a status they. They go into sport for, let's be honest, let's be brutally honest, it's a profession. The main reason snooker players play snooker is to earn money for themselves, to provide themselves with a living, same as anyone does a job. Now, if they're entertaining millions of people, obviously that's a fantastic bonus and that's what keeps the sport spinning. I'm not sure that, I think we, we get too bound up. It's, it's quite a modern thing, this idea of role models. Um, and a lot of people actually like Ronnie for the opposite reason. They like him because he is human because he isn't a sort of robot who spouts the usual sort of corporate things. Yes, he fails sometimes. And let's be honest, I mean, to be absolutely blunt, he's been a pain in the arse at times. He, he mm. absolutely has. He absolutely has. But he's also been the opposite of that. He can also be incredibly friendly. He can be incredibly warm. He's an extreme personality. Now, from what Dave's saying here, he doesn't like a lot of the... He thinks a lot of the sort of the soap opera, if you like, has taken away from his greatness as a player. I have to say I disagree because I think ultimately you judge a sports person by their performances and their achievements. And of course, his are his are many. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. The whole role model thing. If someone comes along who's a great sports person and is also someone who conducts themselves in a way which sets a great example to young people, that's fantastic. It's a great bonus if it happens. But if you don't do that, it doesn't take away in any way at all from your abilities as a as a sports person and what you accomplish in the game. And I think when it comes to all sports personality, people hang up on this word personality. It's not meant to be a, a test of your character. It's just the word personality is used because, well, I mean, they could just as easily have called it sports person of the year. So I think when it does come to, you know, greatness as a uh, as a sports person, it's, it's all about what you achieve. It's about what you accomplish. I mean, Tiger Woods for a long time was seen as a great role model. And actually, in some respects, he is. Then, obviously, we found out in 2009 all kinds of things about his, his private life, which, which changed that. But in a sense, it didn't take away from, you know, his, his obviously it didn't well, take away from his accomplishments at all. And it, and it didn't take away, actually, from, you know, how much of an example he set with his work ethic and his dedication. It was just his personal life away from golf that I think people had the issue with. Yeah, and you're allowed a personal life. OK, someone like him sort of crafted an image, maybe, that was not true of who he actually was but you, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean you don't take three masters titles off him because of it he still won mm. them uh, uh, yeah. yeah i agree but here's the thing okay so there's another email about ronnie this is the thing okay and he does have detractors and i do think as i say there are people in the game who maybe weren't interested in being on, on the sports personality shortlist maybe didn't see the bigger picture but he's still someone they want to talk about and we've had an email from matthew mcconnell he's, he's raising three different points about ronnie so we'll go through them quickly First one is about his future. He says, Ronnie says he hasn't been practicing much. And with the level of performances we've seen from him, I definitely believe it. He's getting through matches because he even fi- either finds a spark of brilliance that could win him a few frames or because his reputation causes his opponents to crumble. Is this the future for Ronnie? I'm getting a bit concerned that this is the beginning of the end for him as one of the top, top players in the game. He hasn't shown any great form consistently since the Tour Championship in 2019, in my opinion, which is 18 months ago. It doesn't feel like he's actually declining in the way Davis and Hendry did, or Higgins looks like he might be right now, but just that he doesn't want to apply himself properly. It would be a very sad end to his magnificent career if he just petered out and slowly drifted down the rankings just because he doesn't want to practice. I'm hopeful perhaps it's just a phase similar to what happened around 2015-17 when he didn't play as many events and dipped a little, although he still won Thomas in that time and played well on occasion. What do you think? Well... Of course, he did win the world championship in August. It's not it's not that long ago, and mm. and I think actually the business with practicing. What he's saying is okay at tournaments where you've got the one to eight players, you basically get sort of fifteen minutes, twenty minutes if you're lucky, and then you get sort of hauled off. And I think and I actually can understand it. He he finds that a little bit undignified. So therefore, what he's saying is, I'm going to practice during the match, which is you know, a questionable thing, but that's kind of his rationale, okay, whether you agree with it or not. I'd be very wary of writing off a great player. People wrote Mark Williams off not so long ago. He won the World Championship again. John Higgins keeps getting to finals. They they have dips in form. They they had that 20 years ago, you know, their form was up and down, but I, 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 I think it's too early to say he's kind of declining as a top player. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, you wouldn't want to to write him off completely and say he's not going to be uh, one of the leading players. I think he's certainly going to be one of the one of the very good players for a number of years to come. As to whether or not he can get back to being the very best, I mean, he's up against a lot, isn't he? I mean, we've spoken about Trump. We know what a good player Robertson is. Selby's showing a bit of uh, a renaissance now, as it were. Not that he ever went into a massive decline, but he's certainly playing perhaps better now than he has been for a while. So it's going to be very, very hard for him to do that. 
just returning to the whole sports personality thing, one thing that massively counted against O'Sullivan was the fact that unlike all the other nominees, there was a major event in his sport mm. going on on another channel at the same time. So basically, Dave, it was your fault he didn't win because you were you were dragging viewers away <laughs> over well, to ITV. Well, it's funny but, you should say that because because they, Will Snooker asked me to do a little video. Um, I saw it, yeah. Yeah, and I did say at the time this 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 almost certainly will be the end of his chances if I'm getting involved. Yeah, <laughs> but that's the, that, that is the thing. I mean, you know, people who who like snooker are probably going to be watching the Grand Prix final. It was such a good final as well. So I think that definitely counted against O'Sullivan, the fact that uh, the hardcore support for snooker wasn't there for him to vote because yeah. they probably weren't watching. They, they were over on the other side. So, uh, But it was it was good that he was shortlisted. And, and as for the whole role model thing, I mean, I think Judd is more of the role model now because, as we were saying, he's kind of a young man who's got a great talent. Okay, when he was younger, maybe he didn't make as much of it as he should have done. I'm not saying he had a bad attitude, but he'd be the first to acknowledge, I think, that he could have done more with it. But now he's showing a great example with the way he's committing yeah. himself to the game in terms of the way he works. Uh, and, you know, people talk about dedication and commitment. It's not just what you do on the practice table. You've then got to show that sort of commitment and resilience on the match table as well and give your all to try to win the matches. And as I say, I thought he spoke very well at the end and, uh, you know, is really... There's been so much talk about how he's maturing on the table. And I mean, that's been obvious uh, for a number of years now. But I think off the table as well, he's a great credit to himself. And he, he tried to, you know, put forward this image of himself when he was younger, that he was this kind of, you know, playboy throwing his money around with the fast cars and everything. And he doesn't seem interested in that anymore, actually. Now he seems to be want to be more of a sort of, a, you know, Stephen Hendry, Steve Davis mold you know, where it's all about the, the commitment and the professionalism and the dedication. So, but again, if he wasn't a role model, I don't think it would take away at all from what he's accomplishing on the table. And I guess the same is true of Ronnie as well. Well, here's the thing. It, it, it's the John Spencer thing. So John Spencer told this story about when he got involved in the administration of the game, someone was sort of having a go at him and they said, what What did you ever do for snooker? And his answer was, I played it. Yeah. Uh, we, and that's what Ronnie's done. And, and Ronnie playing it has brought millions of people, fact, to the sport. Anyway, this is not we're not a, we're not a home of juicy gossip on this podcast. However, Matthew's uh, this is still Matthew McConnell. His second point. I'm I'm actually only going to do the first two, Matthew, because otherwise this is all we'll be talking about. But here they are. So it's about Ronnie O'Sullivan and Mark Selby's relationship. He says, I thought Mark and Ronnie had been quite friendly towards each other the last few years. I think Ronnie even mentioned in an article at one point around the World Championship in August they were good mates. However. I thought that the atmosphere between the two at the Scottish Open final was decidedly frosty. They didn't really acknowledge each other at any point. Ronnie was very quick to walk away from Selby after the photo was taken at the start of the match. And Selby has been taking a few swipes at Ronnie lately. It didn't draw much response on TV at the time, but I felt Selby made a point of saying cue action and new tip in his post-match interview when he won. Mark seems like a lovely guy, and I know he likes to joke around and poke fun at people, but he wasn't saying it in a jokey tone. It felt very serious to me, and a little like he was sticking the boot into Ronnie. Do you know if they still get along or did they ever? If they were friendly, then it seems a bit odd that at the semi of the worlds would that, that the semi at the worlds will be enough to sour things. Perhaps I'm reading into things too much, but it would be a shame if they didn't like each other as I love them both. Well, would it really? I mean, they're not they're not supposed to get on, are they? They're supposed to be rivals. Um, I think there's always in snooker there are real friendships. I mean, Judd and Jack is a real friendship, mm. and then and then there's the sort of veneer of friendship that you get. Like if you work in an office and you kind of you don't really like someone, but you have to get along with them because you're there every day. And at the end of the day, all these guys are competing for the same first prizes, the same legacy, really. They're trying to win the big titles, um, the world championship, et cetera, et cetera. 
the thing with Ronnie and Mark, they're very different people. I agree with what Matthew's saying. Mark Selby, definitely, they were pointed references when he was talking about Q action and, and his tip and everything, definitely. And he made the point afterwards uh, in, in the World Snooker interview that, you know, if he'd been playing on at the end of frames um, in the way Ronnie had, he would be absolutely battered by the media, by social media, by everybody. Um, but it's a rivalry, okay? It's a rivalry. There's a lot of history between them. Mark's beaten Ronnie in some big matches. Ronnie's beaten Mark in some big matches. I don't think, looking at the two personalities, they were ever going to be best pals. And personally, I'm quite happy if they don't get on. I think that's good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so long as these things don't get out of hand, which mm. it definitely hasn't, then it is good for the, for the game, absolutely. And, you know, it spices things up a little bit. In some ways, you know, their backgrounds are completely different because, you know, Mark, there was never much money around at all. He's spoken about how he had the help of Malcolm Thorne in his early years, even to have his way in the game. Ronnie was the complete opposite. I mean, he came from a very wealthy family. You know, his dad was, you know, paying for, I think they had a table in the house, didn't they? And he was yeah. you're yeah. paying for people to come round and, uh, and play. And when he was going down the club, he was giving him money to get a taxi down. He wasn't even walking to the club. So from that point of view, very, very different. And I think perhaps you, you can see a difference in their appreciation of it, that Ronnie perhaps doesn't fully appreciate the position he's in, whereas Mark, I think, always does. He's very grateful of the life Snooker's given him. In another way, of course, they have enormous similarities because Ronnie famously didn't quite lose his father, but to some extent did when he was, whatever, about 16 years of age, when his father went to prison for all that time. And Mark, of course, you know, had lost both his parents one way or another by a very early age. So they're very similar in that sense. But all in all, it adds up to two very different personalities. And um, Mark just gets under Ronnie's skin. I don't think he ever set out to. But I think when he realized that he had, I don't think it came as a disappointment to him to see that he was having that impact on Ronnie. And it's a rivalry that, you know, you can go back to the Welsh Open final when Mark won his first ranking title almost 13 years ago now. I think the rivalry perhaps started then and it's never really gone away. And it's certainly been spiced up by certainly the world semi-final and to a large extent, the uh, the Scottish Open final and the various little controversies there were in that. Yeah, I agree what you said about the background, but I think it's also fair to say that in a way, Ronnie, I mean, he said himself that he was kind of, it was almost like being a royal prince Mm. He was he was so sort of groomed to become a snooker player. He never really had a choice. That was what he was going to do. Now, of course, he's great at it, but it was almost like I think some of the sort of implosions at time have been maybe looking back and thinking, you know, is this actually the life I ever chose for myself or was I pushed into it? That's maybe a discussion for another day. What we're going to move on to now is the main part of the podcast, which is a review of 2020. Obviously, in snooker, we talk about seasons normally, but it's the end of the year and it's been a year like no other, obviously, because of the pandemic. Um, it started, I mean, of course, at the start of the year, we were starting to hear about the, the COVID in, in, in Wuhan in China. The Welsh Open on the signage, it was like, good luck, Wuhan, and we're thinking of you. And there was no sort of appreciation of the fact that this would come to us. And maybe that's, I don't know, maybe that's just a sort of arrogant British thing, or, or maybe just because we had no sort of experience of this, we just didn't think it could get as bad as it did. Uh, when the year began, of course, the Masters is always the first big event. It was. Um, it's funny that tournament because we always say top sixteen, every match could be a final. But then when there are a few upsets, we we refer to them as upsets. And there were a few early on. It ended up with a, a final. I'm not sure anyone really called Bingham Carter. It was a great match, and Stuart Bingham once again in a big final played fantastically well. He was seven five down, played brilliantly at the end there, and he didn't do anything else really the whole year of any note. But he won the Masters, so who cares? And another Triple Crown title for him, Dave. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So what, one of us had to mention it. Yeah. We haven't mentioned Fergal O'Brien yet. Oh, we have now. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I mean, 
yeah, echo what you say about that. I mean, the other thing I remember about the Masters is Dave Gilbert playing really well in mm. the early rounds. And, you know, he, he says that he didn't kind of bottle it. You know, I don't like that term, but, you know, he, let's just say it seemed to me the occasion got to him in the semifinals. Now, he maintains it didn't. And I suppose, you know, we have to take him at his word on that. So that was the other thing I remember. But it was a funny old final lineup. And, you know, we've seen that a number of times. Like you think back to the year Mark Selby on his debut played Stephen Lee in the final. The Masters just sometimes has a habit of throwing up finals you weren't expecting. It was a big opportunity for both of them. Um, the fact that they were in the final and they weren't playing an O'Sullivan or a Higgins or whoever. And uh, it was Bingham who, who, who took it and, and well done to him for that. But my word, doesn't it seem a really yeah. long time ago now? Well, it's been announced just, just today that, um, that, that there's still going to be Ali Pali, the Masters. There'll be no crowd. Um, I understand they're not going to play it in the same part of the building. They're possibly going to play it in the old theatre, which would be a very different backdrop, um, which is interesting. I think it's right to try and have it in London and not have it in Milton Keynes because it is one of the standout events. But here's the thing. I mean, we'll talk about next year, maybe in due course, but I think everything else will be in Milton Keynes up to the Crucible, personally, including the mm. German including the German Masters. You know, I mean, it, 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 things clearly are getting worse. There's this new strain. And, you know, the countries are stopping people traveling to and from Britain. Um, that's going to create trouble for some of the overseas players, I guess. Um, but, yeah, the Masters, as you say, seems like a long time ago. Because straight after that, it was kind of the Neil Robertson uh, month, wasn't it? He, mm. he was in three finals in three weeks. He won the European Masters and the World Grand Prix in between, lost in the final, the German Masters. A player who, well, I mean, he's been a top player all year, but he, he does seem to have these purple patches where, where he really turns it on. Uh, he went to the Welsh Open, got to the quarterfinals despite looking like a zombie. Sean Murphy won that one. Great performance in the final against Kyron Wilson. Michael Holt won the shootout. That was a great uh, moment for him. And then, um, this was one of my favourite tournaments of the year, the next one. It might surprise a few people maybe, but the Players' Championship in Southport uh, was a great week. It was a new venue for snooker. Um, it was packed every session. Um and it included what, for me, was the, the break of the season. And that was Judd Trump's break in the decider against, oh, yeah. against Steve Maguire. Mm. He drops in that fantastic red to start it. There was the shot where he develops the safer off the cushion. It was the deciding frame. If ever you wanted to just show people a frame that illustrated Trump's maturity, the fact his confidence in himself, and just how well he's playing, full stop, and, and poise under pressure, that was it. And, of course, he went on to win the, win the tournament. Yeah, and of course, it was around that time. I remember being in Southport on the day of the final and people were just starting to talk about, OK, this COVID thing could actually yeah. have a big impact. And there was the, I think that was the week that people started talking about maybe the World Championship being in doubt. Although at that time, I don't think anyone really thought it was going to be postponed. I think most people were saying the worst case scenario, there'd be nobody there and th th there'd be no crowd. And I remember someone, I think it might have been Phil, actually. There's another person we mention on this every week. And he said, uh, but but really, you know, what what's the difference, you know, having all that many people, you know, between that and going to a big shopping centre? And it's not like they're going to start shutting down all the shopping centres. I mean, it just, you know, reflects how naive we all were at that time about what was to unfold really over a matter of a few weeks after that. But Trump was riding so high at that time, wasn't he? And again, we all thought he's got so much momentum behind him. You know, well, OK, let's have one last mention for the year of the curse of the crucible, because we say that's that's my equivalent of your mm. triple crown. But we were saying at the time, 
it's very rare, if ever, that a player has gone, with the possible exception of Stephen Hendry in 91, gone to the Crucible to defend for the first time, looking in such great shape to retain it. We'll never know now what would have happened if the World Championship had happened at the right time. And he'd gone there with all that momentum behind him. Would he have won it? He certainly would have had a better chance of winning it, I think, than when it was played and all that momentum had just naturally ebbed away through months of inactivity. But uh, he was just riding so high at that time because that stage you were getting about 15, 16 months of just regular tournament wins for him. And uh, again, that was another really good week for him in Southport. Yeah, and of course he went on and won in Gibraltar as well. And that was the the first sort of behind closed doors affair. Uh, the final two days, there was there was no crowd. Um and at the time, it was sort of, I don't know, there was they were doing the thing of sort of ironically lifting the trophy up and all that and kind of acknowledging a crowd that weren't there. Even then, I don't think we quite appreciated how serious it was going to get. But we did a couple of days later. I went to Clandidno for the Tour Championship on the Monday. It was starting Tuesday. And the Monday evening, we went to this lo- local pub that we'd been in the year before, a few of the commentators and whatever from the, from the ITV crew. And on the TV at the time, Boris Johnson was giving some sort of briefing, essentially saying basically everything is going to get a lot more strict and serious. And, you know, the lockdown was essentially coming. But even on that night, you know, we still understood that the tournament would take place. Then the next morning it was postponed and I went home. And I think, as with everyone in the sport, you're thinking, OK, well, when are we going to be back again? Um, it was pretty clear then the World Championship wasn't going to happen. Um, it was a very difficult month, I think, April, the fact that it just wasn't on. I mean, all the nostalgia was being pumped out. We did a bit of that ourselves on this podcast. Mm. But but the fact is, there was nothing happening. And, you know, the players, I'm sure, very much in the same boat. And all the people who work in the snooker industry rely on it for a living. When's it gonna, all going to come back? Um, and then, of course, here's what happened. So I was told this last week. So Barry Hearn, chairman of World Snooker, chairman of Matchroom, within two days of the Tour Championship being postponed and it was clear what was coming for the world championship he emailed all his staff and he said do not worry none of you will lose your jobs none of you will have to take a pay cut we're going to get through this and what that did was that gave all the staff there at world snooker tour the security that okay we're okay so we can now focus on our jobs we don't have to worry about whether we're going to have them or not we can focus on trying to find a way in this pandemic to actually get snooker back on they had to get the nod from the government, which was June the 1st, Elite Sport could resume. And on June the 1st, it did. We had the Championship League. A lot of planning went on uh, to get that on. It's actually, in a way, it's, it's sort of a stroke of luck to a degree that they found that Marshall Arena in Milton Keynes because they only got that. That was supposed to be the venue for the Champion of Champions because the Rico had been double booked in Coventry. So the Champion of Champions was always going to be there. So they, had, they already had the in before the pandemic came along. And they realised, obviously, the hotel was on site, so they could have some sort of bubble. But the work that went into actually making that work, it never been tried before. You know, they were working literally from scratch. Incredible, really. And there's been a lot of people saying, well done to Will Snooker. It's almost like become just something you say. Believe me, they mean it. And I mean it when I say they've done a great job. When we talk about the achievement of the year, on the table, it's Judd Trump and what he's done. But off the table... It's all the people, names that most listeners to this podcast won't know, who have been working long hours, long weeks, in some cases months away from home to make all this stuff work. And because that championship league passed off without incident, of course, they then thought, okay, all these other events we can put on in Milton Keynes. And that's what they've been doing basically basically ever since. And, you know, haven't we been entertained with, with 
you know, great matches, great, great finals, great stories. Yeah, I mean, there's just been so much of it as well because a lot got crammed in because the season, I guess, started late and some events have been brought forward and that. And, you know, even when play did resume, you, you never felt the World Championship is definitely going to take place because there was it was just changing so rapidly almost every day. So really, right up until the World Championship started, it was almost like you didn't really believe it was going to happen. I mean, those few months were just extraordinary with like no sport going on whatsoever. I mean, you just couldn't believe that a situation like that was ever going to happen. And as you know, Dave, I mean, I have a very good memory about dates and when mm. things happened and, you know, what day of the week a certain date fell on or whatever. And the thing is, so much of that is hung on sporting memories. Mm. You know, I think back, OK, so that was happening in May and that was happening in June. It's like there's this kind of, you know, black hole for me of about three months mm-hmm. there because there were none of those things to hang it on. It was just the strangest time, and you just we've we've run out of words to use and ways of describing it. And then, of course, it was just so surreal when we're there, the 31st of July, and mm. snooker is being played at the Crucible. But my abiding memory of that first day actually is because this was the first time in a long time that I wasn't there, and it was very limited media presence. But obviously, I watched a lot of it in television, and I remember on that first day, I was kind of half listening. I think I was doing something else. It was the first session of uh, one of the matches on the opening day. And I just heard you suddenly putting on your sort of address mm. to the nation sort of yeah, tone yeah. where you said, Boris Johnson, I'll tell you, the only other time I've heard you do that was when you announced that Stephen Hendry had retired because that was where I first mm. heard it, actually. Anyway, but I remember you saying, Boris Johnson has just announced that all sport has been suspended with, you know, in terms of crowds going to it as of tomorrow. And suddenly the whole thing had changed. And I remember at that moment, I was wondering, is the championship even going to continue? Is it going to, is the world championship going to be abandoned after one day? And then, of course, we had that, you know, very, very surreal couple of weeks. I've seen play at the Crucible where normally the crowd are packed in so tight. And certainly nowadays, you never see an empty seat. This year, that was all we were seeing was empty seats. What a stroke of luck, though, that it just happened that the restrictions were there and eased a bit just in time for the final so that we didn't have to go through the disappointment of uh, seeing a world final being played out with nobody there. But what a strange time it was to be watching the world championship at that time of year. I still, in a way, can't believe it ever actually got put on. I mean, I was at the qualifiers, which were a completely joyless affair. I mean, they are anyway, normally, because it's it's tension and whatever. But, you know, there was a strict bubble, hotel, bus to the venue, venue. That was it. Um, and, you know... <laughs> To, to get to the crucible and have a sense of normality in as much as it's still the crucible. Okay. As you say, for most of it, no crowds, but you could become absorbed in the tournament. And we go, we, we go to the, the, the greatest day of the year, which must've been the, the last day of the semifinals. Mm. Um, those, those two matches that both went the distance, incredible human drama, as much as sporting drama, um, showing everyone illustrating what snooker can actually produce at the top level, which is just compelling, as I say, drama. I mean, it was, you know, it's not true to say you'll never see anything like that again. You will, because we've seen, we've seen that not, maybe not on the same day like that, but those sort of matches, they happen a lot because that's what the sport can, can produce. We saw it again in the UK final. Yeah. And there's always something new to happen, isn't there? Mm. I mean, you know, you think of the final frame of the uh, McGill Wilson semi-final. It was, it was just, you know, you could write a whole book about that one frame alone, let alone the, the, the match that had preceded it. It was extraordinary stuff. And then to have that in the afternoon, sometimes if you have that, then the evening can be a bit of an anticlimax after it. But, well, I mean, the complete opposite, wasn't it? What an amazing uh, session. I think that the, in terms of final frames, the mm. afternoon match is the one we'll remember the most. In terms of this yeah. evening session as a whole, 
I think it's got to be the Selby O'Sullivan one. And again, mm. the bit of needle that was there. And O'Sullivan's tactics that he got absolutely hammered for by some people. But I think you and I both agreed that actually fair play to him because he had taken on a certain tactic. And the bottom line was he'd won. And I think those tactics that he'd taken on it had helped him to do that. Selby absolutely distraught afterwards because I think a lot of the comments he made were because he knew deep down he had thrown that match away. How did he not finish off O'Sullivan? There were times when O'Sullivan's game looked to have gone completely. There was one frame in particular, you might remember which one it was, but it was in the third session on the Friday morning mm. when Ronnie played about five or six of the worst shots you've ever seen. Yeah. And somehow he manages to win the frame. And, and that kind of summed up the match. And Selby never managed to put him away in that one. What a chance it was for him. He would have been big favourite going into the final. But it was a, an absolutely in, incredible day um, all round. And, uh, and then, of course, we had the final to come after that. Yeah, not a great final, but no. I think, but I think you know, a great story. Ronnie O'Sullivan winning his sixth world title, and the fact that the tournament was played actually was the, I think, was the achievement. And then back to Milton Keynes, a run of really interesting tournaments, titles shared around by Selby, Judd Trump, Neil Robertson, a bit of Mark Allen in there, Karen Wilson won the Championship League, all top players. All this stuff about no crowd, the the low rank players will come through. Didn't happen at all. In some ways. I've sort of called it laboratory conditions for the top players, that main mm-hmm. table. It's kind of where they're going to thrive. And they've just proven that they're, they're the best players. Just, co- I mean, I've just come off the back of five weeks of, of uh, commentating. And, um, you know, it's not digging the streets. I, I understand that. It's not saving anyone's life. But it, it, it's a lot of concentration. And, and I sort of, after the Grand Prix final, just had a, a sort of sit down with Neil and Alan, uh, Neil, Neil Fulton and Alan McManus, that is, because um, they'd been, Alan had been playing a lot and, commentator Neil had been studio and commentary and I think just to get to the end of it was kind of you know you realize how long you've been at it it was quite melancholy you know normally we'd all go to the bar and have a drink you couldn't do that we were literally just sat around you know talking um and we're only small cogs in a wheel and I'm and I'm much smaller than those two but to actually have been part of it I think was quite interesting it's been an historic year for snooker and to have seen it and be part of it I'd like not to be part of that again. I'd like it to go back to normal, but it looks like that's going to take a while now. And we can't, we can't predict even in a year's time where we're going to be. But as I say, a huge achievement for everyone to have actually played these tournaments. Kudos, of course, to the players who continue to showcase the sport and the broadcasters as well. Rolf Kalb was saying that Eurosport, despite everything that happened during the year, still broadcast 130 days of snooker, coming to, which comes to over 1,000 hours. And that's going to 60 countries. So the sport, despite all the problems, was still high profile. And that's important uh, going forward. We prove that we can actually, you know, despite everything, continue. And that's really the story for me of the year, as much as anything that's happened on the table. Yeah, I mean, look, obviously, I can only echo all of that. And uh, it's been great to have it. I mean, it's in, in some ways, I mean, certainly, you know, my big three sports, snooker, golf and football, watching none of them has been the same because there's no crowd there and there's a very different atmosphere to it. But my word, I would have missed them if they hadn't been around. And, you know, it's, it's just been so fantastic to have something like that just as a distraction from it all. And, and I thought it was great, actually, the final. Just great to see two young lads like this, you know, in the prime of their mm. careers. Great mates, as we know. Two people who personally I certainly would have a lot of time for. I think they're both, you know, fine young men. And, uh, you know, they, they served up a, a, a wonderful final. Shame the commentary was no good, you know, with you and Neil. But, you know, you can't have everything on a, on a final night. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, ro- a rather sour note on which to I know, the yeah. 
yeah, but, I know. But no, but but it, but it was just great to have all that. I mean, imagine if sport hadn't come back at all. I mean, yeah, just I, know, yeah. I talked about that three month black hole and nobody knew how, how it was going to turn around. Were they going to allow sport to resume at all? They I mean, it, it wasn't inevitable that all these events were going to take place. You look back now and we almost take it for granted now that, that, that they have happened, uh, albeit without any crowds there. But it was by no means uh, inevitable because the government and maybe another government would have clamped down more and said no. No gatherings, no sport until this is all over. Imagine what that would have been like, because it would have been going on now for nine months at this stage. I can't imagine what we would have ended up talking about on here. But anyway, a, a regular correspondent, Scott McCarter, writes, and this is sort of linked to what we've been talking about. He said, I wanted to ask where the top four now, Trump, Robertson, O'Sullivan and Selby, compared to the big four at the turn of the century, Hendry, O'Sullivan, Higgins and Williams, and the other big four from 30 years ago, Hendry, Davis, White and Parrott. My feeling is the quartet at the turn of the century was the best, followed by the present. Well, I mean, it's all opinion. I think, you know, you think of the sort of golden generation, Ronnie, John and Mark competing against Hendry when he was still, you know, at his best. That is possibly the sort of peak big four. I suppose the question is, though, and here's let's just throw a, a curveball in. Is it actually a top four now or is it a top three? Robertson, Selby and Trump are winning titles. Ronnie won the World Championship, but in terms of this season... He got mm. to a couple of finals, hasn't won anything. Those three, because they all they were all on 19 ranking titles, weren't they, until Trump won his 20th. But they're sort of they seem to be pulling each other on. Um, I don't know. I, th- I think I can understand why Ronnie would be put in there. He's world champion. He's been in two finals. But where where do they stand? Where does that four stand then in terms of the other fours? It's a bit like uh, people used to talk about the big four in tennis, and Andy Murray was included in it. And then it just got to a point where the others had achieved so much more than Murray had, even though he had obviously had a great career that people just couldn't viably talk about a big four anymore. So I know the point you're making there. And I think it's a strong case for that. And I mean, look, we've said it, haven't we? O'Sullivan has, I think, been found out against those opponents in recent times. How does it compare? I mean, how can you compare, really? I mean, you look at what they're having to beat to stay as the top players. I think... You know what's what's coming, what what's what's beneath them in the rankings is a lot better now, certainly than than 30 years ago, and and you've got to say than 20 years ago as well. So it's very difficult to compare these different eras, isn't it? I mean, the game's just played in a different way in so many respects. The tournament scene is very different. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure I can really come to a conclusion on that well, one. What about you? Well, they're all great players. It's different different eras, players at different stages of their development. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I I just think you know in any era you, you know you you have these rivalries and what's interesting is the same players end up like Hendry was in two of those O'Sullivan's end up in two of those maybe in ten years time Trump will be involved in the, in another top four somewhere. Um, let's crack on because we, we're going to end our Christmas special, which which unlike most Christmas specials is not recorded in July. We're going to mm. end it with Dave Tindall uh, finally completing his tournament, but we're, we're oh, going yeah. to get to that with some more emails. Uh, Donald Murtar, he says, mm-hmm. as he's now cust- as he's now customary, I should point out my first name rhymes with Tonal, and the G in my surname is silent. I understand that now. I understand that. Yeah. Now. Okay. Is, now that we've got the admin out of the way, let's get to the main order of business: the criminal underuse of the overhead view in snooker broadcasts. To my mind, the overhead view of the table is by far the best, and it's the only perspective that does not suffer from foreshortening. In much the same way as the plane as the plan view of a house is the only perspective which allows accurate comparison the two-dimensional room sizes, the overhead view is the only camera angle which allows one to see the two-dimensional space of a snooker table accurately. To take one specific example, it's very difficult to see whether a red will pass the pink into a middle pocket when the default camera angle is used. 
he goes on a bit more about this, and then he he uh, he wishes a Merry Christmas and uh, suggests he says, "I look forward to the inevitable 2021 annihilation of the Talking Snooker podcast, sending them packing to whatever cold dark corner of the internet that Table Talk have been hiding in for the last nine months." <laughs> Not really the spirit of Christmas. We we welcome those guys enough. So I, yeah. Anyway, but in terms of the uh, overhead camera, you're right. It is it is um, it, Eurosport at the Home Nations have. The sort of it was sort of side on, but the whole table, which is a new view for snooker. But here's the thing, okay, and the the, the main shot that you think of, so the sort of the main shot of the table, that has slightly changed over the years, and it's sort of become a bit flatter. And the reason for that is because now, part of if you have a sponsor, part of their deal is you get to see their signage on the set on the main shot, which never used to be the case. So that's why it's you're right. It's so many, and even commentators say, you know. Can he can he see that? Can he pot it? Because it is distorted. You're absolutely right. Um, I think th- the overhead is a good angle to have to sort of check that. I don't think you'd want to watch the whole match from that though. No. Um, there's a lot of players who are thinning on top, certainly, and referees who don't want that either. Um, but yeah, it's it's it it does help. I mean, they, Eurosport put up Ronnie's one of Ronnie's breaks in one of the tournaments. The whole break shown from the overhead view, and it was as Neil Foles says, sort of mesmeric, just watching it from that angle. Um, I think snooker uh, sort of coverage on TV has improved vastly over the years. Um, you get more angles now. Sometimes you get too many. I know people get annoyed, and I get annoyed when the cue ball's running somewhere and you cut to faces and you cut to this and that. We want to see what's happening on the table. Um, I guess there's just more options now for the for the guys who are directing. Well, you're absolutely right. We are getting more angles because he seems to be working on every channel now <laughs> on every tournament. Yeah, and uh, the, the other the other view, view of angles, absolutely. I think we've seen that probably since actually snooker resumed in the summer. There seems to be a bit more experimentation of looking at it from different angles that we've not seen before. And I, I think that's great. You can never have too many of them. Massive fan of the overhead view as well. I totally agree. I agree with what you said as well. You wouldn't want to watch all the match or anything like it. But certainly to see it for a passage of five or six shots, I think that's where you get the best perspective, actually, of how the player is working the cue ball. So it does work really well at times. It's actually been around for about 30 years, because in the early 90s, I think, around about 91, 92, thereabouts, ITV, were starting to use it. So I'd like to see it a bit more. The other thing, if you remember in those days, probably from, certainly from around the time I started watching snooker in the mid-80s, uh, a lot of frames used to start, particularly on the BBC, they'd be start off from way above yeah. the table. Yeah. And they'd zoom in very, very, very slowly. And very often there would be no commentary, no balls potted, because so many frames in those days used to start with about four or five minutes of safety play anyway. And it was very good, I thought, just for sort of setting the tone for a frame. And, you know, you get the, the big overhead perspective of the whole setting with the table and the crowd and everything. And gradually it zones in on the table. So uh, great to see different angles being used now. And um, hopefully that, that, that'll continue that experimentation. Adam, Ad- Adam Adkin from Australia. We, we, there was some discussion about what happened to snooker in Australia on television. And he's explained basically what happened was it went on to a pay TV package that not a lot of people had. And now Eurosport in Australia seems to have sort of disappeared as a channel. However, uh, Matchroom Live, the new platform, you can now watch it. And this was sort of announced last week on by World Snooker Tour. You can now watch it apparently on Matchroom Live. Now, I was told by someone in Australia separately that, that you couldn't but will snooker assure me you can so i hope that's true and i hope you can still subscribe to that and watch the snooker in australia if not let us know steve dunn writes uh i sometimes get confused with the ranking point system i gather the prize money is in line with the ranking points on offer for any given place in the tournament 
But for bonus money, would I be right in assuming this does not add bonus ranking points to a player's season? You mean sort of high break prizes? I'd be very surprised if there was points available for highest breaks and maximums. What about the million pound bonus for winning all four Home Nations events? Well, that's actually been scrapped anyway. But no, uh, uh, high break prizes, maximum prizes, any bonus prizes, you get the money, you don't get the ranking points. Um, yeah, that answers that basically. Now, mm. I don't know if this is a relation of yours, but Shane McMullen, right? Oh, right. Now, we did a few weeks ago our view on the perfect player. We sort of robot player, um, different aspects. And he just wants to contribute, so I'll run through these very quickly. Potting, Neil Robertson for the assurance felt when he gets down for a long pot. Break building, Ronnie O'Sullivan for the way he can make a century when only 20 seems on. Safety, Mark Selby for his ability to put his opponent in a compromising position at any time. Temperament, Marco Fu for never showing emotion regardless of victory or defeat. Technique, Judd Trump for the shots he can play that others can't. Tactics, John Higgins for grafting from behind in so many frames and matches to victory. Rest play, Karen Wilson for consistency and confidence. Entertainment, Mark Williams for alleviating tension during tense matches and being able to joke and laugh. Professionalism, Steve Davis for his dedication and being the face of the game for so many years. And finally, legacy, Jimmy White for everyone he inspired, excited and continues to do so. All I'll say about that is, and perfectly fine choices, Shane, but one in the eye for Stephen Hendry there. He doesn't, he doesn't appear anywhere. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a very good point, actually. Yeah. The one I would wonder about, and look, you know, as you say, they're all good choices and it's all just opinion and debate and discussion anyway. I'm not so sure about Marco Fu's temperament, you know, because I think when he came on the circuit at first and made about as good a start to his career as any player has ever made, I think within two years he was in the top 16. And I don't think he was able to cope with it, actually. I don't think he could handle being one of the top players. And any time it looked like he was on the brink of becoming one of the best players, he seemed to not really believe in himself to see it through. And, you know, from that point of view, maybe in individual matches he had a good temperament. But in his career as a whole, I wonder, was that maybe what stopped him becoming the top three or four player that he looked like being? But look, it's all just discussions anyway. OK, we're going to move on. Maisie from Birmingham. Uh, I did ask, at the start of the lockdown, maybe in desperation, thinking we wouldn't get any emails, I asked for people's snooker dreams. And mercifully, oh, yeah. mercifully no one set me in. Well, that's changed. That's all I'm saying. Maisie from Birmingham. Firstly, can I say how much I enjoy your podcast? I genuinely look forward to it every week. And the last few episodes have had me laughing out loud. As I'm listening to it in the attic on headphones, my husband must wonder what on earth's going on when he walks past and hears me roaring with laughter when I've just said I'm going to listen to a snooker podcast. He's not a snooker fan and certainly wouldn't associate humour with snooker. He doesn't know what he's missing. Well, quite right. Mm. Uh, anyway, I just had to share with you a snooker dream I had last night as it featured, among others, a player regularly mentioned in the podcast, Dominic Dale. You see, it's already good. He said, uh, she says, the dream started outside the venue for the UK Championship, which I booked tickets for this year, so I was hoping to be at. It was a cold, rainy day and we were in a very quaint city, but not York. It seemed more like Germany, a country close to my heart as I studied German. The queues to get in the venue were snaking all around the streets and people were getting irritable as it seemed to be taking hours to get in. As I followed the queue, I passed Mark Selby leaning against a wall. Oh, hi, Mark, I said. I'm rooting for you, but no pressure. I'm a big Selby fan, so that was true. He just smiled and said thanks, which was nice. And I walked away. And as I walked away, I called back. I know you can do it. Think about this. I'll just cut in here. This is remarkably detailed. When I have a dream, mm. I, usually, I usually forget about it immediately. But this, anyway, we continue. I then ended up in another section of the queue with Sean Murphy who appeared to be commentating on the queue, which was totally bizarre. By, the, by this point, I was fearing I wouldn't get in at all, and we were hearing rumours the final of the tournament had started, and there were still miles of queue to go. So I made the bold decision to go around to the back entrance and walk straight in, something I knew to be illegal, 
but I was so desperate to get in. This may be influenced by me wondering before the UK moved to Milton Keynes and we went into lockdown whether it would be illegal to travel to York, as I live in Birmingham, which is tier three. Anyway, I walk around to the alternate entrance, watch all the times of officials who might arrest me. And believe me, Maisie, they would do. Uh, but there was no one around. And I made it in just after the tournament had been won by none other than Dominic Dale. He was stood at a... <laughs> He was stood at a podium being introduced as the winner by the presentation committee when suddenly he interrupted them, fist bumping the air and shouting at the top of his voice, this is the best achievement of my life. He was grinning from <laughs> ear to ear and continued to shout, this is amazing, while everyone looked on, slightly stunned, but I'm sure enjoying his enthusiasm. I personally found it very amusing and thought it would be a good clip for a funny snooker moments compilation. Uh, I'd actually found a funny snooker moments video on YouTube. I mean, watching it that day. So you can tell I'd bored. I'd been in lockdown. Well, there we are. Well, you call it a dream. Some will call it a premonition. Um, yeah. not, not for this year's UK championship, but Dominic, he's still going strong. You never know. Uh, yeah. Get well, yeah, go on. Well, whenever Dom tells us he's going to win another tournament, we say, yeah, in your dreams. But now we know it's happening <laughs> in someone else's dreams as well. So maybe it's a possibility. I've had a few dreams about being at the Crucible. Well, you know, nothing particularly memorable. It's just when you spend so much time somewhere, um, you know, inevitably you start having subliminal thoughts about well, it. Well, I, I occasionally dream about the Crucible, but it's always the same dream. It's always, there's an, there's an entrance I've never been in before. And it's usually like another building. I understand this is getting rather deep now, but there's not, usually it's another building that you wouldn't know leads into the Crucible. So say it's a hotel or, I don't know, even a school or whatever. It's, it's a hospital, whatever it is. And you walk in and then suddenly there's like a throughway and you're in the crucible. There'll be psychiatrists listening to this just assuming we're nuts. But anyway, um, anyone else had a dream? Let us know. Uh, one more email before we before we have the big finish. Mm. Mark, ha Mark Hayden, who works uh, in tennis, I think he's emailed before. He said, thanks for the show and answering all my questions so far. I really love the chat you and Michael have developed. It's helped me get through these tough times. Apologies, as you may have had this surgery before. I've only just started listening in the last few months. My question is, what is the tournament structure like for juniors these days? The reason I ask is that I have a nine-year-old son who's obsessed with the game and Kyron Wilson and just wants to play tournaments matches. I'm aware it's probably not as vibrant as the 80s and 90s. I mean, I'm sure the class of 92 are playing loads. But there, there are currently tournaments for these ages. But are there currently tournaments for these ages? And if so, where are they? I did try to email the WPSO a while back, but didn't hear anything. I work in tennis in this exact age group and there are quite extensive opportunities, but I'm wondering if I'm missing a website or place where there's more info as I can't seem to find it. Well, the, I guess at the moment, no, there's nothing happening because the clubs are shut. Um, so at this precise moment as we speak, um, all the sort of junior activities have shut down. We're talking, I mean, I'm guessing we're talking about the UK. There are tournaments, that, 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 you know, there, are, there is a, a, a junior circuit. Um, there's a, an English amateur and the various amateur bodies in different parts of the UK. Uh, the best thing to do will be to write to uh, or f try and find out from, if you live in England, for example, the English Association. Um, they do run events. They, they tend to be fewer in numbers than they once were. That's just a fact. Um, a lot of clubs have shut down. There are fewer people participating. Um, but I would, I, I would, get, I would. Um, Matt Hewitt, I know, listens to this. He's from the WPSA. So maybe I'll get Matt to contact you and he can send you uh, all the information uh, that you that, mm. your, that your son requires. 
Yeah, I was thinking Matt would be the man to talk to. And mm. funny enough, someone else who in a previous time, she's retired now, would have been the person to contact because nobody ever had their finger on the pulse of the amateur game quite like her. It was Janie Watkins, mm-hmm. who uh, she ran, what was it, Snookernet? Was the, uh, the well, Global, global Snook. Global that snook was it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Funny enough, I heard from Janie just a couple of weeks ago. I'd say it was the first time I'd heard from her in about seven years. Now, she was a, a player back in the 80s and 90s on the women's circuit. And incredibly, I hear from her for the first time in about seven years while I'm sitting having a coffee with Alison Fisher, which was ah. an extraordinary coincidence. Mm. But um, anyway, the, the thing about the, the junior game now, I mean, uh, Finbar Ruan, who's a big mate of Ken's and you know runs one of the best clubs in Dublin, Cross Guns in Fibsborough. Uh, just on, on the north of the city. I was talking to him about this a couple of years ago, and he said the big problem with juniors now is that they don't come in, and this is something Alan McManus has talked about a lot, they don't come in and concentrate on the game. They're on their phones, and they've got you know all kinds of other distractions going on, and he says he wants to ban phones from the club, uh, but he says if he does, he'd never see any juniors. He'd never see un- any under-18s, and the club would have no future. So that's the difficulty you're up against now. But certainly in terms of... Obviously, that's not a problem, you know, with this child that we're talking about here who is hooked on the game. But, yeah, I would say Matt is the man to get in touch with, because even if he can't give you the info himself, he'll be able to put you in touch with someone who can. Definitely. And, and you know, Jason Ferguson was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. Mm. You know, they, they, they work hard, those guys, to try and the grass to try and build up the grassroots. They're frustrated. They don't get any government help or support money, essentially. Um but, you know, there are there definitely are opportunities for, for young players. So, yeah, I'll, I'll get Matt to contact you. We end. This is kind of our Angela Rippon, if you like. Um, this is our spectacular <laughs> on the Christmas special. Uh, Dave Tyndall, it's been a strange year, 2020, and we've ended up having regular correspondence from a man with a six-foot-by-three table in his house, basically playing tournaments as other players. And it's reached its zenith, some say Nadir. Um, he's playing a tournament... Uh, effectively under a new format put forward by Neil Folds. It seems a long time ago Neil put all yeah. this forward. It's essentially a doubles event where you, end, you you play a doubles match and then after that you play your doubles partner in a singles match and so on and so on. Um, it's a popular culture, Masters. So if you listen, listen, if you've been listening, you know all about it. Let's just get on with it. So Dave says, we left it at the semi-final stage with Bill Maynard and Jacob Rees-Mogg about to take on Jimmy White and Ronnie O'Sullivan. The winning duo would then play each other for the Neil Foles Trophy. Maynard and Reese Mogg were obviously clear underdogs against White and O'Sullivan. But before the opening frame, it struck me what on earth Reese Mogg was even doing here. I expect he has a billiard room in one of his mansions, but his, <laughs> but his contribution to popular culture is zero. I also can't stand the bloke, and yet here he was on the verge of winning this tournament. However, I can't consciously miss deliberately, so I had to see it through. I have to say, Dave, I'm with you on all of that. Anyway, he continues. Thankfully, Maynard, despite his 89 clearance against Robin Asquith in the quarters, was all over the shop, and Ronnie and Jimmy made light work of a one-sided semi. Ronnie's 40, sealed the first, and Jimmy had a 37 in the next. And so to the final, White v. O'Sullivan. Two of Stuka's most well-known personalities contesting the snooker in popular culture masters had a nice ring to it. It probably needed a crowd, this one, but the cesspit of bitterness arena is in Tier 3, so no fans were allowed. I'd love to tell you the final was a classic, but to be honest, it was a bit of a dud. In a bid to make it spectacular, I got too elaborate and rushed everything. Both players had an average shot time of about five seconds, and I kept missing. In the end, Ronnie limped over the line 3-1 in a best-of-five final. Still, it means the winners of my big three lockdown tournaments have been Steve Davis, 982 World Championship, Stephen Hendry, the Pop Black Commentator Special, and Ronnie O'Sullivan, the snooker in popular culture masters. It's been great fun playing them, and I'm drawn to a logical final thought. 
can these events now be considered the triple crown mm. of the 6x3 recreation world? My feeling is that you'll say no, Dave, as there was no mention of it being a thing when I played the first event. I'm sure you'll sift through past emails to double-check this. Quite right, Dave. And, you know, you people are trying to trigger me now with this. I've got over it all, but people are trying to trigger me. Even Dave Tyndall now is trying to trigger me. But thank you, Dave, for your latest event and for your contributions uh, to the podcast. Well, um, whatever whatever yeah. about Triple Crowns or anything like that, surely now, on the basis of his progress in the tournament alone, Jacob Rees-Mogg goes down in history as the best double-barreled surname snooker player since, I guess, Mark Johnston, Alan. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. he, who was also a public school boy, I believe, actually. Oh, uh, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I should just say, by the way, as well, uh, we had a correspondent in Italy who, was, I'm afraid I've misled your email, she she did a wonderful um, examination of Ronnie O'Sullivan's record in the so-called majors, which it was so detailed, there's not time to read it out, but I have still got it, so we will address it uh, in the new year. I guess that's the thing as we wrap up. Uh, the, what the, I mean, this podcast has been going for five years, but it's only this year where we've even had an email address uh, mm. so that we can um, interact with people. And it's been great to have so many people contacting us. Unfortunately, we can't uh, we can't read every email out. Even uh, actually, we mentioned Angus McAnally a couple of weeks ago. He got in contact with me um, to say he's fine and he, he enjoys listening to the podcast. Uh, I should also, by the way, thank Phil Seymour, the MC, who, who seems to be doing a better job of promoting the podcast than, he, than either of us, because he, <laughs> he's literally stopping people in the street telling them about it. So thank you, Phil. Uh, but yeah, the, the, we started doing, I mean, the podcast has been going, as I say, five years, and you can listen back to the back catalogue. There's lots of interviews with players and people in the sport. But when the lockdown came on, we thought this would be a good way, A, of spending our own time, but B, hopefully of entertaining people while there was no snooker going on. And even when the snooker came back, um, you know, just, well, just yakking about the sport. I think, you know, Snooker should have a podcast and we're not the only one, but uh, we've been basically going strong pretty much every week, um, which I think at the start of the year, because the way the sort of tournaments were, you know, the, the podcast was a little bit sporadic. But anyway, we've kept going and part mainly because people have responded and sent things in and played their fantasy tournaments and come up with their questions and their theories. And it's been, it's a nice community of people. It's Snooker fans you know, we don't get any nastiness like you might get on, on social media. It's all been very friendly. So I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's listened and corresponded. And as far as I'm concerned, we're going to carry on, aren't we? Maybe, mm. maybe, we, maybe we should have discussed this before, <laughs> before we started. But I, I, I see no reason why not to. Well, you see, this is what you always do. You try to have these little negotiations as yeah. to whether we're going to continue. Well, we're on air, so I yeah. can't say no. But uh, but no, I wouldn't say no. Anyway, it's been, uh, been very enjoyable, actually. And uh you know, doing them on a weekly basis now. I think the first time, I wasn't on the first podcast, it was on about the third or fourth, which we recorded in a medical emergency room uh, at the Rico Arena in Coventry about five years ago, and the door kept opening and closing with different people coming in and out. But it's, no, it's been great doing it on a regular basis. And as you say, I think what's kept us going is the fact that people have responded because you can put something like this out there into the world. And, you know, you've no idea if people like it or are they even listening to it, but... Uh, We've got a, a very good response, and I think that's actually why we've we've continued with it. And yeah, absolutely, let's keep going strong in in 2021, and hopefully we'll be reporting on it on a happier year for snooker, and uh, you know things getting back to some sort of normality and the great progress that the game has made over the last 10 years. You know, getting back to being uh, really built on emphatically, as uh, as I'm sure it will be once 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 it has the opportunity to really do that properly. 
Absolutely. And my, my thank you to you. And, and also, um, mm. over the months, the sound quality has gradually got better. It's, I mean, at first, it was, we, it was horrendous. We've had a few nightmares with connections, and it's still not perfect. Someone uh, tweeted me last week and said, um, my only, my only uh, criticism is that it sounds like you're on the radio. I'd take that, to be honest. I think that's fine, isn't it? What's wrong with that? Yeah, no, um, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though. Here's the thing now. Mm. Now, you, you always do these negotiations with me on air when yeah. I don't have a chance to think about yeah. it. So I'm going to put a thought in your head, right? Mm. Obviously, it's definitely something that isn't going to happen uh, anytime soon. How about at some point we discuss the possibility of a live snooker scene podcast somewhere wow. maybe wow. at a tournament with an or i mean to be honest now would perhaps be the best time to do it because if nobody turned up you could just say it was because we had to have it behind closed doors anyway yeah. i'm but, getting uh, I'm let's get, think I'm get, about it well i'm getting flashbacks of the radio one Roadshow from the 80s with sort of uh, simon mayo or so, simon bates or one of those people but yeah okay well i'll, I'll, I'll tell you what then i'll let you organize it <laughs> and we'll and we'll yeah. do it and we'll do it. Oh, you're going to regret saying that. Well, Simon yeah. Mayo, of course, is one of, is one of the leading podcasters yes, himself is now, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, let's 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 think about that maybe. And and actually, let's let's see now if maybe people might email in with their thoughts on it and whether or not they'd want to come to it. Yeah. Hopefully, it'll be a bit more successful than an evening with Clive Everton, which mm. I was due to host at the Landor Theatre, I think it was, back in 2007. And anyway, the whole promotion of it was a shambles, and it never actually ended up taking place. Anyway, look, something to talk about in the new year. Well, let's end with wild, a, wild, a couple of wild predictions. Um, mm. the, the World Championship, I suppose, is the one. I, I suspect if I ask you who's going to be world champion, I know what, the, what you're going to say. But I'm going to, well, I, will, I will ask you yeah. who's going to be world champion. Uh, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg. No. Um, I mean, how can you not tip Judd Trump? I mean, that, that is the thing. I mean, how can you possibly make a case for anyone else that is greater than the one for Judd? So, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying he's definitely going to win it, but it's hard to see how he can state anyone else's case more highly although then again i did tip mark allen to win the 2020 yeah. world championship and he went out in the first round yeah i mean i yeah i mean i suppose you've got a chump, chump will start favorite in the in the betting um whether, mm. he'll, whether he'll win it i don't know it's hard to win isn't it i suppose all, all any of us hope for is a better year all round, not just in snooker but generally it's going to be i understand a difficult christmas for people not just in the uk but you know right around the world um, a lot of people won't be seeing their families and so on. It's going to be tough, I think, in January. Uh, we will have the Masters, though, to look forward to. And that's it, really. I kind of said this last night on the commentary. It's been a beautiful distraction to have snooker, yeah. just snooker to watch, you know. It doesn't change what's happening in the world. But for all of us listening to this podcast now, we're all snooker fans. At least we've had that going on. It may you know, take away dark thoughts for a few hours or whatever. I don't know. And hopefully this podcast has done similar. Um, but if we're not careful, we'll be going on for three hours here. So maybe this is a time to wrap up. As I say, thank you everyone for listening through the year. We're going to have, that's it for this year. Uh, this has been our Christmas special, but uh, yeah, thanks for listening and we will return next year. So from us all, are we going to finish on a song, aren't we? Or did we not plan that? What? <laughs> you definitely didn't mention this. Well, no. you, uh, I'll, I'll organise the live show. Yeah. You can you can sing the song. Let's let uh, let's let's not finish on a song. Let's yeah. just say Merry Christmas to everybody. Have a happy New Year. Stay safe. And that's it from us. We'll see you in 2021. And let's hope, let's all hope, it's a better year than 2020. Thanks for listening. Sports Social Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? 
Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.